Unfortunately. Uh, this is KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today, uh, on subversity, uh, subversity, we're going to be uh, dealing uh, or talking with uh, some people who have uh, compiled a, bo- a new book on um, posters, revolutionary posters uh, from China uh, of the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, um, the Cultural Revolution posters from China. And with us on the phone is uh, Lincoln Cushing, who's a author of this uh, and a collection of uh, political posters. And he's also the, uh, an author earlier of a collection of Cuban posters. And uh, Lincoln is a, uh, has been a librarian and uh, is an uh, artist. And he is um, the compiler of this, uh, the co-compiler uh, compiler of this collection of posters called Chinese Posters, Art from the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution by Lincoln Cushing and Anne Tompkins who we hope will also join us in this conversation. Oh, welcome, Lincoln. Welcome, Lincoln. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, and also with us on the phone uh, is uh, Steve Louis, uh, who is a Chinese-American activist uh, who, has, um, who is also uh, mentioned in this, uh, in this uh, book. And uh, he is heroes... Um, uh, um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Chairman Mao. Um, welcome, Steve. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're st- still waiting for Anne, and uh, hopefully uh, she will call in um, during this hour. Um, Lincoln, why did you um, uh, why did you come up with this book? Well, uh, I have a long-standing interest in in political and revolutionary poster art. And as you mentioned, I did the book on Cuban posters, and I also recently did a book on San Francisco Bay Area political posters. And this one fell into my lap because Ann Tompkins heard me on the radio talking about the Cuban posters, and she said, oh, I've got some Chinese posters. And it turned out that her collection was a very significant one. And so in deciding sort of where they should go so that they could be accessible to scholars, we ended up agreeing that they should go to the East Asian Library at UC Berkeley, which is a real focus for a lot of scholarship. But in the meantime, my original editor from the Cuba book said, would you like to pitch us a book on the Chinese posters? So we said, sure. Um, And the idea was that this was a very important slice of, of posters. And the other thing was that there are some books out there on on these posters and on Chinese posters, but they really have a different take on sort of what the posters Hi. mean and Hi. what the cultural evolution means. And so oh. we were oh. trying to do something different. Yeah, so um, the collection will go to the East Asia Library at uh, UC Berkeley. Right. Um, it's already there, actually. Yeah. And this, the bulk of the collection was that uh, collected by Anne uh, during her um, trips? The, the entire in collection was hers. I mean, she... When she was in China, she really liked posters and would just go down to the to the bookstores and buy them, and so she and some of them were given to her by friends, and she got some subsequently, but this is entirely her personal collection that she did just because she liked the work. She wasn't trying to buy them as a art dealer or anything. She just she liked them as political graphics, 
and she then later on in her life said she really wanted them to be somewhere where they're accessible to scholars. Yeah, she had arrived in the People's Republic of China back in November 1965 yeah. and took part in the Cultural Revolution Absolutely. up through uh, March 1970. Yeah. And so she spoke Chinese. She uh, speaks some Chinese. Yeah. She's not enormously fluent, but she can certainly you know, understand and speak enough to get around. And she's uh, also uh, made return visits to, the, to China uh, later correct. in 76, 79, 80 to 83, and then 95, and then also in 2006. That's, that's true. Um, we, um, so why, why, uh, what's the difference? If you, if, since you did to the two books, Cuban posters and Chinese posters, are there any differences or similarities between the two? Um, well, there, there are certainly several. I mean, the similarities are that they're both, you know, uh, you know political posters issued by state yeah. agencies. Um, but from that point, there's a big difference that you, I mean, for one thing, stylistically, the Cuban work is very, very different. It's very, um, you know, it's driven by graphic design style, and the, the Chinese stuff is almost all driven by painting and printmaking style. So the China, almost all of the Chinese posters are based on a piece of artwork that is then turned into a poster with a slogan added to it. Whereas the Cuban stuff, they want to do a poster about a particular subject, and they will commission a graphic artist to make something to be printed as a poster. So that they look very, very different in style. And then the other thing, of course, is that politically, I mean, I, I, I thought that doing you know, a book on Cuban posters was going to be very controversial. But you know, as we all know, the Chinese Cultural Revolution is an enormously complicated and contested topic. And so... You know, just writing about the subject matter in a way that wasn't, um, that was giving it a little bit of respect and, and pointing out that there were a range of opinions about this rather than falling into the conventional style, which is, oh, the Cultural Revolution was just this horrible period. Um, we didn't want to do that. I mean, Anne experienced it. She didn't believe that. And my perspective is there's so much anti-communist propaganda that's coming out about that period that we wanted to do something that opened up exploration about what the subject was rather than just treating it as kitsch or as something very weird, which is what all the other books on the subject do. Well, Anne has actually joined us, and so uh, maybe Anne uh, Tompkins, whose collection we're talking about uh, that was made into a book that uh, Anne and uh, Lincoln have um, edited. Um, welcome, Anne. Hi, thank you. Uh, what was Hello, it like... Everybody. Yeah, what was it like, Anne, to join the Cultural Revolution when you went there in the 60s to China? Well, mainly it was exciting, I guess. Um, I didn't know that it was going to be there when I got there. Uh, I, I happened to arrive in November of uh, 65, which was about two or three months before most people knew anything in China about it developing. And then uh, in February, we knew something surely was happening, and by June it was uh, developing into a full movement, and I was uh, not a person who knew a lot about Chinese history or current politics or anything like that, and uh, yet I connected with people that had lived in China for a long, long time, and that is from 1948 on until 19. 
Oh, when did the posters start showing up in bookstores that, so that you would read, oh, wherever you picked them up? Uh, there probably were some there before I even got there, but I didn't realize about them probably for quite a while. Uh, getting around to where I could go individually in downtown into Beijing, main, main shopping sections where the bookstores were, uh, took me a while. So what was probably it? Six months or something. Six months. So, what was it like? Uh, what what caused you to buy them or pick them up? <laughs> well, I just found the art exciting, and I found the messages moving for me. I I really like seeing women on posters doing things that they've never done before historically in China, and sometimes elsewhere, and uh, workers, soldiers, and peasants working together was interesting. Some of them had pictures of things that I was meeting and learning about in China, like the interior of a peasant's home and the way the heating system works through the Kongs, which is the bed they all, the whole family, sleeps on and so on, a big flat platform. Anyway, they, they, showed, they showed the life in China as I was seeing it and also um, moved me politically. How much did they cost uh, the posters when you picked them up? Well, that was another thing. Uh, being able to buy art is something that had seldom happened in my life, and uh, I didn't have a whole lot of money. So when I found these at uh, what was twenty-two cents U.S. equivalent, uh, I could have all I wanted at that time because I was being paid well, living frugally. Were they uh, folded or were they uh, kind of spread out? Or how? No, usually in the stores you would see them uh, all tacked, I mean tacked or posted up around the ceilings of the room, up on, high on the walls with numbers on them. So you go in and you just look at them and there would be the numbers. You just call out them, you know, give the clerk the numbers you wanted. You'd go get them from their cash. I don't know where they... Uh, where they stored them, but he'd bring them out and uh, lay them on the counter. And when we had the whole batch that I was getting, they'd roll them up and tie them with a string. And uh, that was uh, easy to carry home. And actually, I very seldom unrolled them all until I got them back to the States. And we used a few of them when I was doing tours speaking about my experience in China how, in the US. Yeah. How did you how did you uh, you must have moved in in China. Did you move them from place to place within China? In China I didn't have much moving to do. Oh. I, I moved from the Friendship Hotel, oh, probably less than a half mile or so to the institute I lived in, which is when I really got to take part in the Cultural Revolution. And that was after the uh, September 8th, Directive Chairman Mao responded to a big character poster that I took part with some other people in writing, well, in which we asked to take part in the Cultural Revolution, basically. So what was that like? What did you do? I mean, what was taking part? Yeah. Well, it meant that in my, in my institute where I was teaching English, that um, I got to go to all the meetings that they were having, if any whichever ones I chose to go to, and uh, listen in on the discussions. Now, mind you, I 
hadn't any Chinese before I went. So to a large extent, it depended on help of people telling me what was happening. They, I was in an English department in a college, so there were people around who spoke both English and Chinese. The other teachers would help me, and my students, too. So that was uh, a lot of meetings. <laughs> uh, some people don't think that's very exciting, but when people are trying to decide what their school should be like and who, sh who should run it and how the people that had been running it were doing, uh, you know, evaluating their work, uh, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> so, um, it, so the Red Gods were responding to posters you had written? No. Or, or, uh, or words in posters that... There, there were four of us uh, from the United States. The other three had all been living in China a long, long time, and I was the newcomer. But um, we saw a poster by some overseas Chinese who had written one and put it up on the wall in downtown Beijing. And they were asking to be treated as other Chinese. And uh, my friend and I that were looking at this, and she was doing the translating at the time, said, you know, we, the two of us agreed we should do that too, meaning we who are from the United States and foreigners. So we went back and talked to a couple of our relatives and pals, and uh, four of us wrote a poster, which we did not put on the walls because one of the issues was whether foreigners in China uh -huh. should take part or not. In other words, would we be interfering in their internal affairs? But position that we took in the poster was that if we identify on a class basis with the interests of the working people in China, then on that basis and with respect for Chinese uh, sovereignty, we, we, should we could take part, we should be able to take part. So our demands were very specific, like having our children go to the, I didn't have any children there, but the others did, our children should be able to go to the Chinese schools with the Chinese people, or we should be able to study politics with the Chinese people, or we should be able to live among the Chinese people on the same living standard and the same pay, Did which they, all, all yeah. was not available to us at the time. I mean, that's just three of seven things we asked. Because there were friendship stores, right, that only foreigners could shop at? That kind of separation, yes, where things were much more elegant, but it was more fundamental than that. We were living in the Friendship Hotel where there was hot running water and there were servants around all the time to get you anything you needed and there were uh, not servants in the sense we hired them but they were hired by the hotel. But there were always people around and get you hot water and there was rugs on the floor and there were curtains on the windows and this was a time when all the ordinary Chinese were uh, having uh, rationing of cloth. So everything was very elegant, hot running water, for example, not available to most Chinese. So if you didn't put it on the wall, what, what did you do with this uh, big character poster? Well, we, we did two things with it. One is that we, we uh, took a folded copy to the headquarters of the Chinese Communist Party, which is in Beijing, the, you know, the very highest the Jung, uh, yeah, the central, central uh, committee's offices. 
So we left that there, but we also took one without mentioning it over to the uh, head of the Foreign Experts Bureau, which is the organization that we were under at the time because all foreigners were under that. And they, they were the ones that were paying us very high salaries and keeping us separated and so on from living among the Chinese people. And uh, so we took a copy to them without mentioning the other copy. And I understand Chairman Mao read it? That's what I understand, too. Uh, we had a meeting which was called suddenly after that, uh, in which Chen Yi presented to us the, the information that he had read it, and that he approved the Da Zabao, which is a big character poster, and that uh, we would be free to go live in our work organizations. Then. So that freed me from the Friendship Hotel to go live at the institute I was teaching in. And actually, they gave me a, one of the students in my classes became my roommate, and I shared a room that wow. was a two had two beds and two desks, and that was it. And I lived in the institute and ate with the Chinese teachers and students, and was able to be one with them. And actually, I even got to do some levels of political study. Did they cut your pay? Uh, yes, when huh. they told me they had lowered my salary. <laughs> and I still had a salary. I never did know exactly what the other teachers were getting. So it wasn't until I left that I re found out that I had been still getting a much higher salary than the others. The other mm. But still, it was like a fourth of what I had been originally being offered. Wow, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, it was. And it, it was, you know, it put me... Anyway, <laughs> it was it was all very exciting, and it was all in the direction of trying to really know the Chinese people and be one with them. Did you go through like self-criticism sessions? Actually, I would say not. Um, I not among the Chinese. I didn't. I think that uh, I heard about those from my other friends that had lived there much longer mm. and been deeply involved over, you know, decades. But uh, I don't know if it was due to newness. I don't know if it was... I think maybe that uh, at that point, things were changing so fast that that wasn't sort of part of a regular regular organizational practice. In other words, when, when the Cultural Revolution began, uh, the leadership of the local institutions was usually removed while they were being criticized for things that the people in the organization felt hadn't been done in the interest of the working class. And uh, so when they were removed, then there began a whole series of different struggles, which all were new, were being invented as they happened. Um, taking, how do you take the leadership out of your organization and who replaces them uh, whoever replaces them, are they any better than the ones before, or are they doing things that should be done? And um, so the movement, the people here don't know what Red Guards were, but they started in a high school, and uh, the name was adopted widely, and the whole idea of having uh, 
local groups that people formed themselves freely uh, identified themselves as Red Guards. And uh, these people were taking responsibility in their group, their organization, which if it was a high school, okay, but it was also in every work unit, uh, not just in the colleges, the factories in the countryside also eventually developed these uh, practices. And uh, so the whole country was in motion with people questioning and challenging the people that had been leaders as to the policies that they had put out and the actual practice they had. And I think it was one of the greatest democracies that ever happened in the world. While it was going on, of course, it became somewhat chaotic and uh, people make mistakes in their choices and in their criticisms and so on. So I, it depends on what you mean by criticism, self-criticism. That was a big criticism movement Mm -hmm. But it wasn't in the sense of individually did I participate. Uh, anybody was free to criticize me, but it wasn't a, it wasn't sort of a practice or a methodology that you yeah you engaged that yeah that I yeah you got took part in. Uh, it's I, I, see, it's really the whole cultural revolution for me. While it was exciting, and I learned a lot, and I understood a great deal mainly because of the people I knew who spoke English and translated for me or summarized for me very often, not word-for-word -word translation. But the, uh, the situation was volatile and not, it was really being decided by whoever, you, I had to make decisions whether I would do this or do that. And I was doing it through the veil of language that wasn't too clear. But every Chinese person was, was being called on take responsibility for the kind of leadership they had, not only at the local level, but all the way up to the national leadership of the Communist Party. So you would say that uh, the Cultural Revolution was a form of democracy, uh, because uh, the head of Hong Kong just had to apologize yes. uh, for, <laughs> for saying that it was an extreme form of uh, democratic reform. Well, the current government, the post-Cultural Revolution government, has uh, condemned the Cultural Revolution. So their stand is that it was uh, a terrible thing. Right. And they're in power. So he had to apologize. So is... Uh, so, so <laughs> I don't know what they'll say to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lincoln, uh, the posters seem to be... Um, the ones you reproduce look like fascinating. The color seems like really uh, incredible. And were they in good condition? Oh yeah, these were um, these posters were in very good condition given you know their age and, and posters in general are always. I mean, people often don't think about it, but you know posters that are generated in editions of thousands or even millions, as some of these were, um, you know they're very fragile documents and they're you know people take them home and then they get damaged and they get folded up and you know something happens they get torn people toss them. So it's remarkable that Anne had such an extensive body of work and that they were in such good condition because she had rolled them up and left them that way pretty much. Um, you know, after I, you know, after I received them from Anne to process them, it took me almost two months just to flatten them out because <laughs> they were very dry and very tightly rolled up, huh. but they were in very good condition. And so, you know, the, I mean, these are professionally printed. Most, almost all of these were done at, you know, 
big you know print shops with you know full color printing and these were nicely reproduced pieces these were not something somebody cranked out out of a garage and so these were nicely done in huge editions and it was really a treat to be able to see this slice of work now you know one thing is that we're uh, it's a personal collection and it's an eclectic collection she happened to buy what she liked so we're not pretending that this is thoroughly representative of all the posters from the Cultural Revolution, but it, it is a representation. And so what this book shows is her choice in the collection and sort of her history of, of relationship to, to these posters and to those events. And sort of what I, my contribution to the book is sort of trying to explain how do you look at the posters visually, how do you interpret some of the code in them, mm -hmm. and also how do you... How do you look at the impact of these posters outside of China? And that's something where I, that's the reason I interviewed Steve Louie, that you know, one of the things about these posters is these were cheap political posters that were distributed in many cases all over the world, and so they had an impact on people doing political work in those other countries. And so in the United States, they influenced a huge range of people that were all politically active at the moment, and these posters meant a lot to them. They may not have known all the details of what was going on in China at the time, but that didn't really matter as much as the fact that they were inspired by the images of these posters of strong workers and strong women. And um, this was all very an important, is a, an important clue to them as to how to proceed with their own work in their own way. I think it meant a lot to me also. I was a kid in uh, Hong Kong at the time, and I would buy the posters at uh, Chinese uh, products stores and uh but i also picked up some that were uh calligraphy from chairman mao uh they had reproduced some of his poetry and um you know his words and slogans um so um but the <laughs> but of course i never collected 500 uh copies <laughs> and they were cost more yeah and they cost more in hong kong obviously the um but we do have with us steve louis and uh steve yeah what was the impact uh of this art and the cultural revolution on, on yourself? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, I, I, I really want to thank Ann and Lincoln for putting the book out. And um, you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, Hi. It, it's really a great, uh, great collection of posters. I've seen the other, the other books, and, and Lincoln's absolutely right. If you want to look at these at posters from China, the Cultural Revolution posters, in context and, and understand what what was going on at the time, both Anne and, and Lincoln's accounts of the posters that serve as an introduction are, are really very, very good. Um, I'd have to say that, you know, I kind of grew up at a time when uh, this was in the, I guess I would say in the 50s and 60s when my parents used to tell me, and I'm Chinese-American, born here, third generation, that, you know, eat your food, people in China are starving. and there was this image here um, where I kind of went through a long period of time of people looking down on on China, and and there was a lot of discrimination in this country during those years. And so when I started seeing the posters um, in the mid-60s and then just started seeing them a little bit more, I actually saw them not so much... Um, just because I was Chinese or Chinese descent, but also because I was really questioning what was going on in this country. And, and, and Lincoln was really, really accurate. I mean, I, 
I saw the posters first through the Black Panthers, um, and it just, it really sort of stood out. Um, and these were very strong images, and this was not the image imagery that I had grown up with. Uh, I'm not sure what I had grown up with, but this wasn't it. And so as I started to look at these a lot more, and I became more involved in student movements and, and third world um, student movements for ethnic studies, and started doing more community work, um, the posters, they, the ones that really stood out to me were the ones that talked about solidarity, um, both among the minorities in China, but also they pictured people from all over the world. And, you know, that really, that really spoke to me, um, because I thought that that was the only way things were going to happen, was if people got together and worked together. And as I started to understand more about China and its history and, and the background of the, the Cultural Revolution, I started to understand more that they were really speaking to a lot of other things. Um, I think one of the one of the things was I was in the U.S.-China People's Friendship Association for a while yeah. in the 70s after it was formed, and it kind of I kind of looked at the posters as I guess through the eyes of a lot of the Americans who were seeing them for the first time and is that they kind of gave you the ones that Ann talked about about like everyday life people cooperating huge stands of fruit in the stores people working together in the fields they kind of gave people in this country a really different take a kind of a hope almost of well is any other kind of society possible and that's a huge question um, you could debate that all day long. But here's this country that everybody's been, Nixon had been, like, just trashing for years. And now he goes and visits there, and all of a sudden, we've got a whole different image. And I thought the posters were really powerful in that way, too. Did you, uh, I know that they uh, depicted um, Africans um, in the in the posters uh, because of uh, China's also policy, foreign policy uh, solidarity with uh, liberation movements in Africa, um, what 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 do you think about that? Um, I thought that was really really important. Um, I personally thought it was great. I mean, my entry into politics in this country came about because of Martin Luther King and and um, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, my my folks were involved in the civil rights movement, and it was something we talked about over dinner and what our relationship was to that and I thought that the posters showing you know the power of the African struggles and and the, the direct statement that the Chinese were making or that the posters were making and speaking for China I guess that they felt solidarity with these other people all over the world particularly black people or Africans um, I thought it was a really positive thing to be saying because um, a lot of my immigrant relatives um, were kind of racist sometimes about that. And I thought that, that these spoke to a much better set of values. And, and so in that, in that way, I thought that, you know, by picturing, by picturing, picturing black Americans and Africans and people of all different colors, um, I thought it was a much more positive way to kind of, you know, put some ideas out there, and very colorfully. 
Um, Lincoln talked about the form of the posters, and I thought that was really important too. These are, you know, they're really great images. Yeah, Lincoln. Uh, you know, th there's parallels here with Ospau, the Cuban uh, right. art artist collective that put out all these solidarity posters. But and I did go to a conference uh, back in January. Uh, earlier in the year uh, at UC San Diego on the Cultural Revolution, and so they had some posters up in their library on uh, in the um, the Pacific um, Rim Library, and um, they some was there were some criticisms that the black images were kind of stereotypical. Well, um, yeah, that, I mean that collection was put together by Paul Pickawick, who. When I went to UC San Diego, he, it was his first year of teaching China, and so um, we have Paul and I have a long history, and he has a personal collection of these posters, and that's the exhibit that you were you were referring to, and it's true that these, and in fact we mention it in the book, that you know that, that the representations of, of other people, even of other national minorities within China, are pretty stereotypical. Part of that is a function of just the the language of posters where, you know, posters have to sort of, ex, you know, exaggerate differences to make a point. And so it's, if you're really subtle, people may miss the point that someone is African or, you know, Vietnamese instead of Chinese or that they're supposed to be Mexican. And so they do rely on certain stereotypical dress, for example, um, to make the point. And you know, in some ways you look at it now and it's kind of hokey, but you know, at the time, they're really trying to make the point, and if you've got only a certain amount of, you know, you know space on a poster to, to, to show that these are people from other countries, you really have to rely on things like national dress to, to, to show that. So, yeah, it was, it was sort of stereotypical, but there was a, there was a logic to it. Um, I mean, it doesn't mean that there also wasn't some sort of deep-seated you know, racist views or stereotypical views of other people from other countries, but at least in the representation in the posters, there's a reason for having to do that because it's it's visual shorthand for these are people from other places. How about the uh, the criticism in San Diego was uh, the, that was voiced was that some of the images showed this kind of savage uh, image of uh, African. Um, did did you find that in savage, the posters? I mean, it was, no. that's an interesting term. I mean, it's. There are posters that show very fierce, um, you know, af you know, black black men with guns, um, which you know, which certainly has been a, a topic in this country that inspires a tremendous amount of fear. But at the time, this was, I mean, very again, when when you refer back to OSPAL, which is the Cuban agency that was distributing posters all over the world, and you see a lot of posters of people with guns, and in this country now, especially with you know, through the time that's gone by, people forget that during that period, both internationally and domestically, the idea of armed self-defense, both for nations and for communities of color, was a very legitimate aspect of surviving in, in a really threatening environment. For sure. So when you see these posters of, you know, a, a black man in a dashiki with a, with a rifle lunging, um, this is, the context is, not some you know street gangster out to get you. It's somebody defending their country from colonial and imperial forces. And so, in that context, it's sort of you know it makes more sense and it's more understandably a positive image rather than a negative one. How about in terms of uh, just intellectual property rights? I guess <laughs> does does China own these posters, and did you have to get permission? Well, 
the short answer is we we didn't get permission on this. I mean, it's the 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 the, the, the approach that Ann and I took on this, and that that our editor at Chronicle Books was perfectly happy with, is that we're you know under U.S. copyright law, if you're doing something where you're really transforming and adding to the value of the work, and you're not exploiting it. Um, you have a certain amount of leeway. And so in this book, we clearly were adding a huge amount of explanation and context and, and trying to get people to, in as positive a way, understanding what these works are. Um, you know, and, we, and we deliberately chose to not do a series of you know, T-shirts and you know, coffee cups with these images because that really is a commercial exploitation. A book like this, in the context of explaining what the posters are and presenting them, and, and especially because it's linked to a, a, an archival collection that's now at a public institution, that all makes it something where we felt it was perfectly appropriate and we're respecting the artists. We're not disrespecting the artists and the agencies that produce them. Do you know who the artists are? Is that, is very any... often we do, yeah. I mean, one really? thing that's hmm. very unusual about these posters compared to you know, government-issued posters from almost any other country in the world is that there's a little tiny... You know, tiny piece of type at the bottom that gives a lot of information about the poster. You know, as Ed pointed out, she went to the store and bought these. Well, these often have prices at the bottom. They have the name of the publishing house. They have the name of the artist um, to tell you what the edition was. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cataloger, you know, in, in a university setting, and, you know, there's no other documents like posters that have this. I mean, books have this information, but posters, you're really lucky if you can figure out roughly what year it was. These tell you almost everything about the poster. It's remarkable. How did how do you uh, like the reproduction in the Chronicle books? Oh, I think it came out really well. I mean, part of it is, again, this is this is new technology where you know this same book ten years ago, I would have given them slides and you know there would have been a series of color separations and proofs and things. In this case, I shot all of these myself with a digital camera, and I provided the proofs, so I knew what they would look like before they were printed. But the colors are really true to the posters, I think. Yeah, and also it wasn't, uh, you know, some other poster books have been very glossy, and this is more kind of subdued. Yeah, this and is an uncoated paper, which is much more characteristic of the way that almost all of these posters were done. They were done on, a, on an inexpensive but not a cheap paper, you know, not like newsprint. They were done on very thin paper, and, but it was a pretty decent quality paper. These posters are not all falling apart and yellowing. They're in pretty good condition physically because the paper was not a particularly bad paper. Um, so the reproductions were all, you know, they came out quite good. And I, I want to point out that this, the the book is only a slice of the whole collection. Right. I was going to ask about that. We actually have, you know, we have posted online, and you can look at all, you know, 500-plus posters as part of the catalog that was um, provided for the East Asian Library. And that's uh, that website is uh, the one you put up? Yeah, it's through my Docs Populi. It's just, you know, docspopuli.org site. And you can, I've got the, the Chinese posters there. And I and I really have to say at this point that the, the working, you know, in, in searching for a place to put these posters and finding a place that was really accessible, uh, Peter Zhou, the director of the East Asian Library, was wonderful to work with, and he, you know, he grew up in China during the Cultural Revolution. He remembers buying these posters. In fact, I interviewed him for the book. Um, he understands the value of these posters in the kind of scholarship that needs to happen about this period, 
And so he was very, very receptive to this collection and, um, you know, which is, you know, posters are sort of these odd documents for most archives. They're hard to store, they're hard to catalog, and most archives don't do a very good job. But in this case, he really understood their value, and it was really, it was, it was really a pleasure to, to work with him on this. Right. I, I think Peter has uh, actually written about uh, this collection in his newsletter. That's correct. And he mentions that even though there is debate over the merits of the Cultural Revolution, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take a scholarly look at it and um, look at its output. Absolutely. So overall, how do you do you how do how would you compare your this book with the book you did before on Cuba? Well, for one thing, it's nice because I was able to, I had the, the enormous good luck to be able to work with Anne on on her half of the book, which is her story about how these posters came to be, um, you know. And so it's you know, that really adds a whole other dimension that my that my Cuba book didn't. You know, these these came from an individual that picked them up over a period of time and has a whole story to tell about them that. That lends, you know, enormous dimension to understanding what these posters are. Um, and the other thing that was also a challenge for me was a language barrier. I, I don't speak Chinese, and so, you know, between Anne and other people at the East Asian Library and, and colleagues of Anne and other people, we were able to, you know, and again, you know, talk about translating these posters. Well, that's a very different thing. Translating Spanish is relatively straightforward, but. You know, not only were you dealing with just a simple language translation word for word, but also making those words in English make sense. You know, some of these were very highly specialized political terms. You know, dictatorship of the proletariat isn't something you hear people rolling out of their tongue in a conversation these days. So you have to sort of translate the posters in a way that makes sense to people now. So there's there's no one correct translation for any of these titles. They're all sort of different you know it's like translating poetry and it's it, that was a lot of that was a whole challenge that I'd never had to deal with before with the Cuban stuff but these two post these two books I think really form an, a, a useful sort of bracket in understanding two enormous outputs of posters at pretty much the same time that were influencing political people and and designers all over the world and to this day we keep seeing Sort of references to this style of poster. Um, you know, when I saw a you know, online, you know, website ad for you know John Kerry for president that used one of these posters from the Cultural Revolution. Um, these images have a resounding and and long-lasting influence. Yeah, I was just in uh, Ann Arbor, and the Detroit uh, one of the Detroit alternative papers used uh, uh, one of these uh, graphics uh, for one of their ads. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> one of the things. I mean, Ann and I are about to embark on a, a series of sort of book talks, and um, one of the things that I want to talk about in, in, in these talks is what's referred to in the book, but has, I mean, you get almost to a whole other book just on the influence of these posters on, on subsequent work, and I've got lots of examples of how these posters are referred to, and even the term, you know, Gang of Four. You know, that term, Gang of Four, is used as shorthand um, in just common language now. And so there's a lot of the legacy of the Cultural Revolution that people have sort of lost track that that's where it came from, but it's really important to realize our own history, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we're starting to do with this book, is that's, that's an aspect of the interpretation of these posters is their, is their long-lasting impact. Uh, Anne, I was going to ask you, why, why did you um, 
contact Lincoln and uh, why did you end up giving the collection to Berkeley? Well, um, I have been toting these rolls of posters around <laughs> for some 35 or 40 years and worrying. I never had a house big enough to put many of them up, you know, to enjoy them. So I wanted to figure out what to do with them. Uh, and I've been thinking about this over the past 15 years or so. So when I was able to learn about Lincoln's work, I, I thought he sounded like a person who would respect the posters and also have the knowledge of how, how to locate them in a, an appropriate place, which I was a little hesitant as to, to do that. I, do, I don't know the academic world or the collections that exist and so on. I didn't. I'm learning about them. Um, so giving them to him was easy, <laughs> but and especially with his doing the photography work on them. And um, so he helped me locate the East Asian Library people. And as he said, when we interviewed with Peter Joe, we were both both sides were satisfied about how they would be used. I wanted them available to the public. That was, you know, important to me. It was also important that it be treated as art. Would they have paid for it? I'm sorry. Would the library have paid for it? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Lincoln. You may want to. On that. I don't. Um, I don't know. It's one of those things where, um, I mean, this is, you know, this is an interesting challenge with with institutions like this. Is, um, I mean, I, I worked for several years, you know, at UC Berkeley and, um, you know, at the Bancroft Library, which is a major, major repository for all sorts of material on the American West, um, and, and it's a pretty typical archival institution. You know, Getting the images, getting the posters is just the first half of the hurdle. The second part is processing the images and making the images you know, and, the, and the catalog information accessible. And so I knew that even though the library might be able to pay for the posters, um, and we were actually shocked at how much they were worth after we had them appraised. These are worth a fair amount of money. Um, but to, to raise the money to buy the posters would have been money taken away from other things. And libraries libraries in general are sort of hurting right now. And so we, we, we didn't want to put a burden on them for the purchase of this. Um, so we're hoping that you know, the money that they saved on on not having to pay for them is going to be able to help with promoting them and making them more accessible for scholarship. And, and you know, the donation included not just the physical posters themselves, but the catalog information that we generated and a complete set of digital images so that they can have an online catalog right away. That's often something that waits for many, many years, if ever, to make the images accessible. So you did all that work for free. I did, I did that and donated that. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And uh, are they? Um, and you're working on another book, right? Uh, I'm. Yeah. I'm currently working on a book on posters of the American labor movement, where I've been sort of doing. I've been going to archives around the country and shooting them and assembling a book. I'm doing that um, with my friend Tim Drescher. But um, and I recently worked on I edited a book of posters from San Francisco Bay Area, um, you know, from from the political print shop Inkworks. And so obviously I do a lot of stuff about political posters, and these posters were have always been an important part of that. And it's really nice to have the physical posters being in you know, a, a major repository and to have the the, the catalog online. And the book the book sort of came along. As a, you know, we didn't even realize this at the time, so this was great. 
Steve, I wanted to ask your opinion on what do you think about putting this stuff in a, in a university archive or collection? Well, I think the key was what Anne said, that she, it sounds like she stipulated that they be available to the public. Um, and I think that the, the ability to preserve the posters um, in a way that they can be available is, it can be very expensive. Um, I agree with Lincoln. I have a little bit of experience with this and some other things with libraries. And I think that if you, if you place the stipulations in such a way that they should be available for direct research by not only scholars but the community and the public, then I think there is a value. And certainly having um, people who are sympathetic to the idea that they should be available and they should be studied is really important. Um, I can think of some libraries where I wouldn't want to see them placed. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but, institution. I that, <laughs> but I think the idea of doing it is is really important. Um, you know, I also want to say that we, that one copy of every poster went to the East Asian Library, but then the duplicates went to the Center for the Study of Political Graphics in Los Angeles, which is, um, it's the largest um, you know, non-institutionally linked community-based archive yeah. in the country. And I, I'm on the board, and I work very closely right. with them, and they do an enormously good job of doing exhibits. And so we were able to diversify the distribution of the collection, which helped a lot. And those posters, I mean, they got fewer posters, but those, again, will be accessible to scholars, certainly in Southern California. And so between all of these, you know, the online collection, the posters in L.A. and the posters here, you know, these posters are now really going to be accessible to people who are interested in looking at these and doing the work, and and that's really what we could hope for. But, you know, Steve's right. I mean, to, to take a poster that's in fragile condition and encapsulate it, which is what they call it, where they put it between two layers of you know, archivally stable clear plastic and the seal the edges, I mean, that's expensive to do. And, you know, it's in an institution like the East Asian Library, they, they can periodically do that to the most fragile posters, whereas most other people just don't have those resources. If you tried to re recreate this collection today, it would, be, it would not only be prohibitively expensive, but the posters would not be in anything close to the condition. You can find the posters today in flea markets in, in yeah. China, but they're not in very good shape. Um, they're they're heavily wrinkled, and the variety is not there at all. So this is you know this is an important it's an important collection definitely. Oh, and well, I just uh, spent three weeks in Europe, and one of the things I did was to visit some of the collections that Lincoln led me to. I didn't know about them, mm -hmm. but there had been uh, earlier uh, exhibits of these these posters uh, at University of Westminster in London. Uh, which has a collection that's somewhere in the 700 uh, different posters. And uh, in Amsterdam, there's what is a really major collection with uh, Dr. Stefan Lonsberger uh, has a collection of over 5,000. That was made into that Taschen uh, he's edition? A, he's done a couple of books. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, I spent a couple of hours with him and uh, talking about it, and he's been... He spent a couple months in China again this summer. They go regularly, he and uh, his co-collector. Co and they, uh, 
they've been scouring, but they've become official collectors, recognized by the government of China as collectors, he said. And huh. uh, so he, he showed me, but he, he collected 218, I think, or 200, anyway, over 200 uh, posters this summer that he hadn't had. And But it's gotten to the point where you have to know the kind of paper it was originally printed on for the period that it was printed in because there are are uh, false posters being put out, you know, they're, they're being created to be right. sold. And he also said that there was, you know, it's a collector's item now. They're collector's items. So there's a, a quite a high high price on some of these posters when they're auctioned. Same thing with, in Vietnam. Uh, uh, when I first went to uh, Vietnam in 1995, you could buy actually uh, posters for relatively cheap. But now there's propaganda, they call themselves propaganda poster stores uh, in Hanoi and in Ho Chi Minh City. And the prices have just shot up, although you can still get small reproductions for $10. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's become a kind of commodification. I mean, the irony here is that a book like this, which is all about public access to these images, enhances their commercial value. <laughs> and so it means that dealers can start charging more and there's more public interest. And so it makes it harder for archives to buy them because they're more expensive. So there's this sad, uh, twisted logic that makes it <laughs> challenging to do this, but we felt that it was, you know, we had we had to put it out this way. Did you, uh, when you uh, took them back from China, did they come with any bugs? <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> I don't think we saw any evidence of that. No, they were, they, I didn't see any, any, any bugs. Cockroaches, no. dead cockroaches or anything. No. Oh wow, that's amazing! <laughs> the, well, that's amazing. <laughs> no, I mean, given the weather uh, that it had to go through, probably lots of different. I mean, I'm sure I've shipped some <laughs> some creatures over from Asia. I had more problem with that here in the states because I had them in an attic at one oh, time, yeah. and I had them uh, in people's garages. I had to get black widow spiders out of them at one oh. point. Oh, <laughs> but uh, and mice, <laughs> but. So it's, that's, those are hazards of trying to keep them for a long, long time when you don't have an archive to put them in. Or did, did, did people th threaten you with throwing them out? What? Did people threaten that you should throw them out? Or? No. No. Oh, good. <laughs> no, they've been mine, and they've been... They were in four or five rolls. I didn't know how many I had until we actually yeah. rolled and counted. How did you ship them back, I guess that's the question. Um, I mean, different things at different uh, times, I guess. Uh, uh, when I came back from China initially, I brought them with me. Um, on the on the plane? I don't know, probably in my baggage. Yeah. I mean, but, you don't take uh, up a lot of space. You think 500 and some odd posters is a lot, but yeah. you know, when they're all rolled up, they really don't take up much room. No, that's right. They go on a shelf. You know, I had them on one shelf here. But, you know, the... They all sit on each yeah. other pretty well. But the, they don't squash. These days, you couldn't come back from Cuba with you know all these posters. They would wonder what you, how you spent money there. Actually, I mean, they might wonder how you spent money there, but it's it's legal to import posters from Cuba um, because, you know, because it's they're they're sort of First Amendment you know, educational. Materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, they're still. You know, it's true that it's you know at this point it'd be easier to come back from China with posters than it would be to come back from Cuba. But you know, it's just it's been really really wonderful to to be able to put this book together and note this really, really important body of work that um, 
you know, in my opinion, hasn't been treated very respectfully in terms of analysis. There are several books that touch on it, and some of them are better than others. But you know, we really feel that this book is, you know, it's a very affordable, you know, highly, you know, it's a beautifully done piece printed in Hong Kong. You you, you couldn't do a $20 book like this in the United States. Um, but you know, so I, I'm, I'm living with those contradictions of you know, how exploited the workers were at the print shop in Hong Kong. But at least the book is a very affordable, and I'm, I'd like to see you know, people, you know, high school teachers, be able to afford this, and, and everybody can learn from this. So it was really, really a wonderful project. Do, do, you, um, do you plan to go to China to talk about this? <laughs> I, I'd love to go at some point. And, um, I go back and forth. You go back and forth. I don't have any official status. Sorry, that was the music I'm trying to... But anyway, go, go ahead. Well, are are no, you going to go back, Anne? I, I go back to visit friends, and I have relatives there. I have Chinese children that I've adopted. Oh, wow. And I have uh, their, their relatives there. Their father is also there. And so, anyway, I, I, I hope to have friendly relations with China and keep on and this situation is drastically different than it was then, and I'm not naive about some of the troubles that happened in the Cultural Revolution either. For sure, for sure. Which we didn't get into because we're talking about posters. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, we could do that another time. Well, thank you all very much. We've been talking with um, Ann Tompkins, Lincoln Cushing, and Steve Louie about a new book that uh, Lincoln and Ann um, compiled, Chinese Posters, Art from the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. Um, Thank you a lot. And we're going to end with the Chinese National Anthem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.